the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And here, quite kindly, to say good afternoon. Welcome. It is the 13th day of April, in case you've uh, lost track. It's just five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. on your uh, basic Tuesday ride home, walk down the hallway. Whatever the case might be, it looks like more and more of us are getting back to uh, to work again. The uh, the issue of uh, COVID nineteen uh, restrictions and so forth beginning to uh, loosen up, and hopefully we'll make some good progress. Hopefully, this pause regarding the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is just a, a temporary one. So much to be in prayer about, much to be thinking about on this Tuesday. And uh, certainly there was a lot of praying and thinking going on in Sacramento earlier today uh, in response to, well, not COVID directly, but many of the draconian efforts by Sacramento um, to place restrictions ultimately on religious freedom in our state in direct relationship to COVID and in direct violation of the United States Constitution. Today, church and faith leaders and constitutional attorneys met at the Capitol to show their support for the Religion is Essential Act, a bill that has been drawn up to codify into law here in California recent decisions made by the U.S. Supreme Court to protect religious practice in our state. The most recent of five court rulings was handed down just last Friday when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a ban on home Bible studies. Senate Bill 397 had its first hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee today. Let's find out what went on and the likelihood of this passing given the current makeup of the California State Legislature and the Governor's Office. Jonathan Keller is the president of the California Family Council, joins us now by phone. Jonathan, as always, we appreciate you taking some time to be with us today and to educate listeners here in Northern California on this particularly important topic. Tell us first, uh, in terms of the rally at the, the Capitol today, how did that go down? Well, Craig, first off, always great to be with you and your listeners. Uh, I hope Everyone had a wonderful Easter, and as we were working on this bill today, uh, the title is The Religion is Essential Act. Uh, really could not think of a better time to do this rally than right in the shadow of Easter, thinking about what a great gift we've been given, and at the same time, what a great commission we have. And that was really the theme of the rally today. It was not to rail against Governor Newsom. It, it wasn't to... Uh, protests that we were being treated unfairly. The real core of the rally today on the north steps of the Capitol here in Sacramento was that religion is essential, Uh, not because we believe that we should be selfish and have our churches, but we heard story after story, testimony after testimony at the rally of how churches over the last year during the pandemic had helped families who were struggling with 
uh, emotional strains of kids not being able to go to school, of uh, fathers losing their jobs, of uh, mothers getting sick, uh, family members even dying. Uh, we heard stories about practical felt needs, about how churches had opened themselves up to provide food and other resources and supplies to uh, communities that were hurting and in need. And the big question that was asked at the rally today and by every speaker was, why should the government, why should Governor Newsom, why should this legislature treat churches worse than big box stores like Walmart or Costco or Home Depot? Uh, We're not asking for any special treatment, but we are saying if you can trust the manager of your local hardware store or the manager of your local grocery store, to provide a safe environment for the shoppers, why in the world could you not trust a pastor to provide a safe environment for the members of his church family? Well, moreover, and you touch on something critically important, that during the course of COVID, we have heard umpteen stories, not only from across the state, but across the nation, of COVID patients who died in hospital alone, separated from friends, family, their children, their spouses. Um, I I can think of sadder, few sadder ways to end one's life, but under those circumstances. And I think it's demonstrative, Jonathan, of the fact that people are designed to be together and with people. We need that human contact. And in times of need and stress and crisis, we need the human comfort that being together provides. And and certainly, and, and I think any longtime believer eavesdropping on our conversation would say, Craig, Jonathan, in the darkest moments of my life, the thing that sustained me through was my faith, God's word, and the body of believers, the church, and having that refuge to go to, even if it's just for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning in the middle of all the darkness that we've been experiencing in this nation over the last 12 months, 13 months almost, is critical. And yet we've seen, as you point out, this disparity between the treatment of churches and and other gathering places. And uh, we know of some churches specifically here in the San Francisco Bay Area, that uh, standing strong has meant racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. Talk to us about Senate Bill 397. What will that codify, and will it provide any kind of relief in terms of the churches that have already stood up and have (coughs) paying a massive price as a result? Well, uh, Craig, I, I, I want to give you the, the, the good news first. There's good news, bad news about today's hearing. Let, let me tell you the good news first. The bill that was introduced, uh, SB 397, it was introduced by State Senator Brian Jones out of Santee, which is near the San Diego area. Uh, but also on the committee speaking in favor of that bill was my senator, actually, from Central California, representing the, the greater Fresno-San Joaquin Valley area, uh, State Senator Andreas Borges, um, they both gave phenomenal speeches today talking about the reason that they believe religion is essential. And um, again, those very things that you said, Craig, talking about the fact that so often in people's darkest moments in their life, whether it's uh, a personal illness for themselves, maybe it's the death of a close loved one. I mean, God forbid, the loss of a child or uh, a marriage breaking up. Uh, All sorts of things that come into people's lives that are tragedies and that are deeply uh, hurtful. And yet the churches 
are the places where people can go and they can actually see the hands and feet of Jesus. They can they can meet alongside not only the pastor or the priest himself, but most importantly, I think, or at least as importantly, alongside fellow believers who can really walk with them through those situations. And essentially what this bill did, would have done, it, it would not have uh, retroactively gone and changed any of the past uh, fines that some churches have faced. Uh, it would not go and really remedy any of the, the unconstitutional issues from the last year. Those are still being litigated in some cases. But at least what this bill would do is it would require that moving forward, no future governor, whether we're talking about Governor Newsom or you know, maybe we're even talking about uh, not even a Democrat, maybe an independent or a Republican governor. I mean, uh, our point is, with this bill was that it should really not be a partisan issue. I mean, religious liberty, ideally, is a bipartisan issue. It's a nonpartisan issue because it stretches to the most core fundamental part of our lives, which is the the right for every individual person to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. And, Craig, I, I just want to point out something that, that really just amazes me. Whenever people talk about the fact, oh, you know, these religious freedom bills, you know, aren't these just, uh, aren't these just you know, a special pleading? Isn't it just you're demanding something that uh, the legislature uh, didn't give? You're just trying to use religion as a weapon to get out of normal laws that are applied equally to everybody. Well, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, one of the most significant pieces of religious liberty legislation to pass in the last 30 years. It passed in 1993. Um, it was signed into law by the president. Craig, uh, I know we probably have some younger listeners. Could you maybe remind people who was the president in 1993? My goodness, 93. That uh, Was that Bush? Clinton. Oh, no, that no. was Clinton. Uh, that was Bill Clinton. That was Clinton. Bill yeah, Jefferson that's right. Clinton. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> he signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And at the same time, uh, this bill passed on a voice vote in the House of Representatives. You had people like the current Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer. He was then in the House. He voted for this bill, declaring the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And in the Senate, you had you know noted conservatives like Teddy Kennedy, who was the co-sponsor <laughs> of this legislation. Uh, I mean, religious freedom, religious liberty, religion being essential, this used to be, not 100 years ago, not even 50 years ago, but in 1993, at the beginning of the Clinton administration, this used to be the most bipartisan issue you could have. I mean, it was literally as American as apple pie. Uh, you had in the Senate, again, 97 to 3 vote to declare uh, this bill Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And now I'll bring you to the sad part, Greg. Um, we, we heard some phenomenal testimony today. We had an incredible rally. Um, but, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said my jaw wasn't still a little bit on the floor. Uh, we walked out of the hearing just about 15 minutes ago, and as I was leaving, the bill was still open. There, there might be some changes. There's still a possibility of maybe a miracle, but... As of this moment, um, the current vote count is two votes in support and five votes in opposition. And mm. sadly, predictably, two Republicans, the only two Republicans on the committee voted to support it, 
and uh, I think five of the seven Democrats on the committee voted to oppose it. So I don't, Greg, i got to be honest, I I don't quite know where we have come in this country. Uh, When we went from something being passed, a concept like religious liberty being affirmed 97 to 3 in the U.S. Senate, and now a bill that is just saying churches should be treated no worse than Costco or Home Depot or Walmart, that bill can't even get a bare majority in the California State Senate. Yeah, I think it's uh, certainly uh, indicative of the paradigm shift that has happened, both in terms of uh, the position of, of faith and uh, public life and, and certainly the the ever increasing march towards being more and more radical in the state of California. And uh, it's it's a sad commentary, but the reality that we have to live with. But uh, the story doesn't end there. Uh, we have the power of the vote, and I would suggest to listeners contacting uh, your member of the California State Senate and urging he or she to vote in favor of Senate Bill 397, critically important at this juncture uh again it was heard today in the senate judiciary committee and uh you know if we can overwhelm those senate offices with emails and telephone calls in support of senate bill 397 it would not be the first time that they've not for their political life changed their minds (coughs) pardon me or changed their vote senate bill 397 you can google the name of your California state senator to contact he or she, or certainly get more information online at californiafamily.org. That's californiafamily.org. And our thanks to Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council, for that update on Senate Bill 397. 18 minutes past the hour, a look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I'm going to talk about a topic that has been in the news a lot of late. And it directly impacts the lives of some 8 million student loan borrowers who are currently on default, default rather for their loans. Some have reached the point, the breaking point, you might say, calling upon the government to cancel all or at least most of the outstanding federal loan portfolio. And this is a bit of an irony, even as Democratic senators are pushing the president to use his executive authority to cancel $50,000 in debt per Bauer to the tune of some $1 trillion. Right now, fully one-third of all student loans go into default. And while that's a shocking number, here's an even more alarming number. Of that group, One-third of all student loans going into default. Fully three-quarters of those defaultees didn't even complete college or university. So the question then becomes, for those that are struggling, this could be welcome relief. But at what price? And if we forgive today, are we going to be obligated to forgive again tomorrow? And if we forgive student loan at taxpayer expense. What happens when times get tough? Do we also forgive Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac home mortgage loans? Where where does any of this stop? And is there a point of which we say we need to help people 
but we also need to hold people accountable. And I would suggest in our conversation today that might run the gambit between the borrower and the borrowee. Let's get a look at the details of this story. Joining me now is celebrated syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. He is the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, The Bob Zadek Show, which locally here in the Bay Area comes your way every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. He is a best-selling author, one of the brighter voices on the radio today and certainly one of the most educated and knowledgeable individuals on the history of the Constitution I have ever known. Bob joins us now to talk about the question of to forgive or not to forgive. Bob, as always, a delight and an honor to have you join us. The honor is mine. Thank you so much for having me. And justice, I, I like to serve my friends by answering their questions. You asked in your introduction, when does it all end? Well, Maggie Thatcher had the answer when she said, sooner the problem with socialists is, sooner or later, they run out of other people's money. And therefore, when it ends is when the federal government runs out of our money. That's when it will end. Depressing answer, but I think it's truthful. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, and... Of course, you, you teed up this really important issue where there is so much misunderstanding about even uh, whether or not student loan forgiveness, we're talking about student loan and, of course, the college and equally important graduate school level. Uh, we have, as you have said, a trillion-plus dollars in student loan debt. The reason I said we is because for reasons that are kind of interesting, the primary holder of student loan debt is us through our surrogate, the federal government. The federal government is not the creditor of last resort. They are the creditor of first resort. They make essentially all of the student loans in the country. And just so you know, the government is looking after us. They will give unlimited, and I really mean unlimited, loans to students, both undergraduate and graduate students, unlimited, I meant what I said, loans, without any consideration, and I'm not exaggerating again, without any consideration as to whether the borrower can pay it back. So unlimited money with no indication of ability to repay is that a way to run a loan business? I don't think so, but that is, in fact, where we are today. And uh, and right now, student loan, uh, there are, as you have said, millions and millions of students who hold student loans, and a high percentage are in default. And there is a reason for that. The reason is that most high school graduates are brainwashed, encouraged, pushed into going on and getting an advance for a, high, a college degree and more. Whether or not that is a good idea for them, whether or not they will use it productively, they are told, you will be a loser in life. Nobody will be your friend. Nobody will marry you. And nobody will talk to you unless you go to college. So, therefore, 
since nobody wants to be friendless and spouseless, they all go to college, whether or not it's the right idea for them. And they go to college for a bit, and they discover, they discover it's not for them, for any one of a number of reasons, and they drop out. Those, that hypothetical student is a substantial portion of the 8 million you refer to. They go to college, they run up a tab of 10 or $15,000. The average student loan debt is somewhere around $25,000. They run up a tab of $25,000 or something like that. They drop out and they go about organizing their life without college. And since they haven't acquired from college the additional earning power necessary to pay off the loan, they have wasted the money, just wasted it. And those and those individuals are the ones who owe the ten and the fifteen and the twenty thousand dollars and they default. Now everybody is talking about a student loan crisis. I would first invite you to discuss, Craig, is it a crisis? Is it a crisis if somebody borrowed money they shouldn't have borrowed and now can't pay it back? Well, it might be a crisis for them, but why is it a crisis for us? So the first question is, is it really a crisis or is it individuals made bad decisions and they have to heaven forbid, suffer the consequences. That's not headline grabbing. That's called life. And to suggest that this is in crisis state because there's a trillion in outstanding loans, oh my goodness, I'm sure the number in relationship to housing loans for Freddie and Fannie alone um, obscure that number by a significant proportion. And as you point out, um, if I am unable to pay my student loan or my mortgage, I'm in a crisis. If my next-door neighbor, however, has no problem meeting those obligations whatsoever, they don't see this as a crisis whatsoever. And I'm almost compelled to ask an important question here, Bob, and that is this. And you touched on this. There used to be a time when certain people recognized that moving on to a two- or four-year college or university was part of their career track. It was necessary for the direction that they wished to head in um, in terms of a professional career, maybe as a doctor, a lawyer, some other professional that required a uh, master's or bachelor's or higher degree. And so they went to college or university. But there was also another significant proportion of the population for whom during their largely later high school years decided that they'd been headed into the trades and as a result would not need a formal collegiate education but rather simple trade school would suffice and today you'll find anybody who's ever called a plumber or an electrician will even uh, no doubt uh, bear me out on this you can make a very decent living working in those trades by simply going to trade school. So I wonder if part of the problem here is we have, and, I, and, and let me put the disclaimer in, I am not suggesting to listeners that I don't think an education is important. It is very important. But one size does not fit all, and sometimes that education needs to be at a college or university, and sometimes that education needs to be 
at a trade school. And I'm wondering if we have so elevated this notion of getting a two- or four-year degree to the point where we're almost seeing a sense of, shall we dare say, collusion going on between those who have educations to sell and a government that has loans that it wishes to make? Well, you know, Craig, you have really hit upon something very important. We, you and I have talked about, and indeed many people in the country have long since recognized that a substantial portion of American culture is created, dictated, controlled by the coastal elites. And sure, for that those coastal elites on each coast who themselves went to college and therefore to make to enhance their how special they are they have decided what they have done is almost signaling that you are of a higher quality that you are special and therefore culture in america pushes youngsters into college and it's furthered by, well, the employers. Well, chances are the employer, uh, the corporate America, if you will, most of it is populated by college graduates. Well, they don't want to think they wasted their money. Therefore, they assume as a given that having a college degree signals that this job applicant is more likely than not to be suited for the job. Not true. You have, as you have pointed out, the trades are high paying, in demand, and when you acquire a trade, you have the additional benefit of you get a shot at working for yourself and enjoying entrepreneurship, which if you just get hired as an employee, you are a worker, a perfectly suitable way to spend your life if that's what you wish to do, but you don't have access to the independence of running your own business as a tradesperson or as an independent contractor. And many people thrive in that environment and don't thrive being in being an employee working for a large faceless, nameless business. So therefore, we are cheating high school graduates out of an opportunity that maybe is best for them, done so because of the folks who have a substantial degree of control over standards and of culture in America. And I think that's the source of the problem. And, uh, and so what happens is, under the federal government loan program, as I said, the federal government doesn't pay attention to ability to repay. It is just assumed, send them off to some place with ivy on the walls, and they will miraculously acquire the ability to repay the loan. Not true. Give them unlimited money. Not true. They're not going to pay it back. That's no way to run a loan program. And really what's happening, Craig, really what's happening is we have the federal government is shoveling billions and billions of dollars to 
colleges and universities. And who carries the money from Washington to a college? A student. Because a student to the federal government is nothing other than a money carrier who carries money from the feds to the universities. What happens to the student is irrelevant. What happens to the feds is irrelevant. The universities get enriched, and now we have a very interesting parallel, Craig. You and I have done shows together. You have invited me on your show to talk about health care in America. And we know that the complaint with health care is that health care costs are out of control, and what we need is Medicare for all, single payer. We need government to control health care. Well, health care costs always exceed increase faster than inflation. You know, the only other economic activity in America where the costs exceed inflation year over year? Graduate uh, colleges and universities. What do they both have in common, health care and colleges? They both get all their money from the feds, the feds through Medicare, Medicaid, and other programs. They get all their money from the feds. And this is most important, in both activities, health care and higher education, the customer, the patient in one case or the student in the other, doesn't know and doesn't care how much it costs. Do you think there's a correlation, Craig? It is the only two economic activities in the country where the purchaser is spending federal government money and doesn't have any idea what it costs. Gee, I wonder what the message is. And these are the two out-of-control costs in America today. And, you know, when you look at, and we'll talk more about this after the break, when you look at just the inflation rate alone, you know, it, it's one thing to argue, gee, it's costing more, kids are taking out bigger loans, they're getting deeper in debt, so therefore let's forgive the debt. Well, wait a minute. Uh, the, the Particularly for public-controlled universities, why there is not more scrutiny to where the money is going. We understand that inflation happens cost of living, cost of producing goods, services, labor, all of that goes up. But when you consider the fact that we've seen over the last 20 years the in-state tuition at public universities go up 212%, and by way of example, exactly 20 years ago, it would cost you $3,583 per year to go to a public university, Cal Berkeley, something of that sort. Fast forward to 2021, and the cost of books and housing not included, that same education will cost you $11,171 per year. And, of course, if you could argue that, therefore, the commensurate increase in the amount of money that you would make has also gone up 212%, we might argue it's not a bad deal, but it hasn't. And therein lies the problem. So is the answer just make, <coughs> pardon me, just make the indebtedness go away? And if we do it now, do we have to do it again in 10 years? We're going to talk about that part of this equation as our conversation with syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek continues. Information, by the way, about Bob's show by going to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. This time out, an update on traffic.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with our discussion. Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard um, here in the San Francisco Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. We invite you to uh, check him out, check the program out. You can do so at 8.60 a.m. The Answer. Again, Sundays at 8 a.m. and online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. We're talking about the student loan crisis. Is it, though, really a crisis, or is it a crisis that we're about to manufacture? Yes, it is true that there are over a trillion dollars in outstanding loans. It is true that one-third of all student loans go into default. It's also true that three-quarters of those student loans that go into default are by individuals who never even completed school in the first place. And I'm wondering, Bob, if this is almost sort of a an effect almost like a buyer's remorse. Um, you know, you, you bought the car, you're not happy with it, so you just decide to park it one day and... Then the next bill comes in and you thought, nah, you know what? I don't really care for that car. I'm just going to choose not to make the payments on it. Now, I know certainly I don't wish to impugn the integrity of every individual that's taken off a student loan. That Yes, some things happen in life where uh, you've lost a job, unexplained, uh, or unexpected expenses come about that make it difficult. So the student loan kind of falls to the bottom of the heap. But the correlation between three-quarters of the defaults being individuals who never completed school might tell an income story, but it also might tell a huge attitude story, too. Of course it does. And, Craig, once you conclude that the fault, at least part of the fault, is with the individual who borrowed money without any plan to repay it or the ability, the ability to repay, bought a product that was ill-suited for the individual, and then asked you and I to pick up the tab, there's something just plain wrong about that. And if that individual is deserves to be to get a grant from all of us to get rid of his student loan debts, isn't the same true of his auto loan? when he bought a stupid car that doesn't work and it's useless to him, it's the same individual who made another purchasing mistake. So does that individual, once the individual qualifies as being not careful with his or her finances, they then qualify to get all their debts repaid? What about the individual who borrowed money to buy stocks? and took out a margin loan, and the stocks went down. That individual borrowed money to try to make money, just like going to college. You go to college to try to get higher earning power. Well, what if somebody says, I'm going to get rich or richer by buying stocks? And they buy stocks on margin. All the stocks go down. They lose their margin loan. They owe money and have those stocks. That individual... Is, has the same motivation as somebody going to college, ends up with a debt. What about repaying that debt? And then, Craig, the hardest problem of all that the progressives don't deal with. Imagine, Craig, that you went to college, you realized college wasn't for you, you dropped out with, with 
student loan debt of $20,000, and you spent the last three years working two jobs to earn the money, and you paid back, Craig, every penny of that debt. And you wake up one morning, and your next-door neighbor, who spent Mm -hmm. the last two years on his parents' sofa, who didn't work, gets his debt discharged. What does what does the country say to the hard worker who paid back every penny? You're a sucker. You shouldn't have paid back your money. The moral hazard in doing this is overwhelming. The lesson is we will reward irresponsibility and punish responsibility. Is that the kind of country we're going to live in? Just imagine confronting the student who honorably paid back their debts when they dropped out of college because it wasn't for them, but they paid back their debt. It breaks my heart to think about the lesson our country has given to that honorable student. Well, moreover, it opens up the door. The the proverbial slippery slope, I think, is encouraged. There's a quote, Bob, that off... Falsely attributed to Ben Franklin, I think it actually comes from Alexis de Tocqueville, who says, and I quote, A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the majority discovers it can vote itself largesse out of the public treasury. After that, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefits with the result the democracy collapses because of the loose fiscal policy ensuing always to be followed by a dictatorship and then a monarchy, close quote. And I think part of the problem here is that this this sort of blanket approach, hey, anybody who owes X number of dollars, we're just going to wave the magic wand and forgive all that debt without regard to whether or not there's even a burden. Some people may have a capacity to pay and choose not to. Um, who, who knows the set of circumstances? But I think that blanket notion of forgiving debt in the face of those who, as you pointed out, have sacrificed in order to repay that debt, and then to suggest that, what, 10 years, 20 years down the road, we do this again, and where do we draw the line? If it's a burden to pay your student loan, isn't it a burden to pay off your mortgage, burden to pay off the car? I mean, where, where does it end? Of course. And by the way, now I'm going to, I have to give a trigger warning to your audience, because I'm about to really get them aggravated. Uh, Schumer and and Warren, Senator Warren, are opting for $10,000 of debt forgiveness. Biden says not nearly enough. It should be $50,000. Now, let me tell you how angry I get at that thought. The, the, the student who has dropped out of college owes ten dollars or $15,000. Well, who owes... You know who it is? Law students, medical students, Mm -hmm. MBAs. They run up unlimited tabs in graduate school. They have the ability to pay back every penny of that debt. So the $50,000 goes to the elites. It is an enormous wealth transfer from the lower classes to the elites, to the lawyers, the doctors, the architects, the MBAs with advanced finance degrees, do they deserve 
$50,000 of debt forgiveness, they're going to earn that back in two years, Craig, and yet they're going to get a $50,000 check, compliments of you and I. It, it, it invites you to get your musket out of the bond, for goodness sake. When, when we, and that's what Biden wants to do. He's not even focusing on the people who maybe have inferior earning power. He's saying across the board. Now, what is a possible solution? What went wrong? Well, the beneficiaries of excessively high tuition and buyers, students who don't care and who spend the government's money as loan proceeds in the universities, they benefit because they get to charge whatever they want. The solution is... Anytime there's a student loan default, the university or the college which that student attended, and therefore they got the benefit, they have to guarantee the loan. Now, what happens? Tuition goes down because they don't want to have to guarantee large loans. What also happens? They now will do a better job providing students with earning power so they don't default because the university picks up the tab. What else happens? Universities are more careful about who they allow to run up a, a tab, to run up a loan. The universities get the benefit, and you and I both know an economic system works the best if the incentives are all aligned. I want the universities to have the incentive of making sure they don't take tuition and send students out of their place, out of the colleges, universities, unable to earn enough to pay it back. That would be a system where the, the risk would be aligned directly with the beneficiaries, the colleges and the universities. The government well, and there's another component the here that I think would, would, and there, pardon Bob, there's another component here that would also sort of further motivate them to do the right thing, and that is this. You know, right now, not only is there a huge supply, a limitless supply, seemingly, of money, but there's also a limitless supply of students. So if, for example, UC Berkeley, not to per pick on the folks from Cal, but UC Berkeley has a 16.3% acceptance rate for the school year 2020-2021. That means if you flunk out next they have no problem finding students. And so if suddenly now the interests are aligned where not only are they motivated to control costs, but also motivated further to help students see this program through to fruition, I think we would find a better success not only in terms of, of fairer treatment for the taxpayer dollars, a trillion of which we're talking about forgiving our taxpayer dollars on, but also, I think, better outcomes from the students. We're trying to align uh, the risks and the benefits in the right place. We're telling students, if you make a bad decision, you pay. We also have to give the students the information. If you take a four-year degree in the history of dance, here is the statistics. Here's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Answer, minimum wage. Now, 
spend four years of college, $120,000, earn the minimum wage because you're an expert on modern dance, if that's what you want to do. Or you can take a degree that's useful. I'm not being snobbish about or denigrating liberal arts degrees, but if you're going to use government money to get a degree uh, as a loan, you better, we're not going to do it because it's your hobby, because you want to study dance. You better be able to pay for it. And I'm fine with that. I w if people are going to borrow money, they're borrowing money because there's a public benefit. The public benefit is we create wage earners who add to the economy. That's the public benefit. If you want to learn a liberal, get a liberal arts degree, which offers not much minimal public benefit, get somebody else to pay, but not tax dollars. Yep, this is uh, certainly a proposal that I think is DOA, and uh, we need to uh, really seriously revisit the the nature of what we're suggesting here in this $1.1 trillion giveaway. And we also need to talk about, as Bob Zadek artfully points out, uh, bringing greater parity, greater responsibility, and having more skin in the game across the board. We're suggesting the government has all the skin in the game. The taxpayers have all the skin in the game. Hey, shouldn't the students and the schools also have skin in the game here? These types of issues and so many others discussed every week on the Bob Zadek Show. We invite you to tune in Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. here locally in the Bay Area. You can catch it on 860 a.m. The Answer. Again, that's Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. Check out Bob's website. Lots of great resources there, as well as past podcasts when you go to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. And our thanks to Bob Zadek for being with us on that segment of Lifeline. 6 o'clock from KFAX. Let's get you updated on some traffic.